0: Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now.
1: There are moments in our life when we are shaped through adversity and challenge, propelled through turbulent change, were presented with an opportunity to take wings and soar from a dark place to one of light. I'm Leslie Salem, founder of Over the Bloody Moon, on a mission to take the muddle out of menopause and show the positive side to this time of life. At Over the Bloody Moon, we believe in three T's to help us thrive, a team, tools, and a tribe. In our second series of The Changemakers, we invite you to meet clinicians and specialists who share their experience and knowledge to help you manage your menopause. Come join us for the flight. Today's show is called Sex and Menopause. Hormonal changes can affect libido, but also cause changes to our skin, making penetrative sex painful and even daily habits like sitting down, uncomfortable. Too many women never visit a clinician to get early support, with many spending years in unnecessary discomfort. Like other health matters, the sooner we seek help, the easier it is to fix and manage. I'm here today with two doctors who are leaders in their field when it comes to sexual problems, with many of their clients already transitioning through menopause. Angela Wright and Angela Sharma are the dynamic duo behind a new menopause and sexology clinic called Spiced Pair Health, opening its doors online in the summer of 2021. Dr. Angela Wright is an experienced GP, clinical sexologist and menopause specialist working in NHS practice in North Yorkshire and Hull. Dr. Angela Sharma has been a GP for more than 20 years she set up and runs a menopause service in her own NHS practice and is passionate about changing the lives and health of local women for the better. Suffice to say, they know a thing or two about sexual health and menopause, so thank you so much for taking time out of your busy days to chat to the Over the Bloody Moon community today. Hi, Hi Leslie. So today's topic is all around sex and menopause. But what does sexual health mean and why is it important when it comes to self-care around menopause?
0: I think it's quite useful to think about what sexual health means actually. It's a good a good way of asking the question because it means different things um, to different people. And one of the things that really struck me when I was training was as a doctor I'd always been taught that sexual health was about having the working parts. You know, if our bits work, then sex is fine, but actually it's so much more complicated than that. And so one of the things that we've done with setting up our clinic is to kind of embed the who definition of what sexual health is. And actually, it talks about the fact that to be sexually healthy, you've got to know about your body, know about sex, know about how it works, have access to, you know, a safe and healthy partnership, and a partner that actually is sexually skilled. So it's got loads of components to it. And I think, One of the reasons why um, it is often an issue at menopause is we're having a huge identity shift when we go through menopause. It's a part of our lives where we, you know, I think to an extent it's a bit of a wake up call. It's a a sign that we're getting a little bit older and time's getting on. So sometimes if we're going to make a change in our lives, it's, you know, it's a real momentum to do that. But also it's a shift in in who we are a lot of the time, you know, from fertile to not fertile or from a mother of young kids to somebody that isn't quite so needed in day-to-day life. So I think all those things really impact on how we see ourselves as sexual beings. Um, And then if you throw into that the hormonal changes and the fact that our bodies respond differently or might get more soreness or dryness or we might feel more or less arousal as we go through things, it's a real kind of melting pot and it's a stage that lots of women Will find that they um, experience sex and arousal a bit differently. Definitely. And it's important as well what you've just said is that it's not
1: just the physical aspect, there's so many different elements uh, to it. So, what issues do you find are most common then when your patients um, come to you
2: and they're transitioning through menopause? Yeah, uh, first of all, I just have to say that every woman's different. You know, there's no woman that comes with all the same symptoms. But generally we divide it into kind of three areas because we're talking about sex and menopause today. So genitals or bladder problems, problems like in their body or in their mind, and also what's going on in their lives at that time. And and it's really important to sort of look at all those three areas. But generally in the vaginal and bladder area, there's a huge amount of oestrogen receptors. And so that part of the body becomes really sensitive when we get that drop in oestrogen. The vaginal tissue and the vulval tissue might become drier. It might become like sandpaper, really easy to break. Also, the inside of the vagina is in folds. And when we go through the menopause, it tends to become flatter and and not as stretchy. So these women will complain of like um, pain on intercourse or discomfort anywhere on the outside of their vulva as well the bladder in that area becomes thinner as well because of the low estrogen and, and women tend to find that they might be having a lot more urine infections or leaking of their bladder as well and then another part of that is the whole pelvic floor area which becomes a little bit looser and all the ligaments become a bit loose so women might find that they have a bit of a prolapse And then when you're not feeling good about yourself, you know, the last thing that you want to do is have sex. And so they get this real loss of desire of intercourse and and it impacts their relationships. And so it's really important to sort of ask about those things. And then there are obviously some women not only going through all these changes, but that had a cancer diagnosis, you know, it really shifts their identity or after surgery. It's a wide variety of presentations, but if you don't talk about it, then sometimes nobody raises it so it, i would just say it's really really important if you're going through any of those symptoms just to raise it and flag it with your doctor or gp or yeah. uh, specialist yeah
1: absolutely i mean it just it shocks me I, i've read quite a few papers now just how women put up with different aspects that that really could be resolved you know if they went and saw a clinician so if you're listening <laughs> please go and see a clinician is really good advice So touching on some questions that have been raised from the community that are kind of like common that they they wanted us to ask you. One of them you've already touched on is low libido. We hear people saying, how do I fix it? You know, it's not it's not an easy one because, as you've mentioned, there's more to just, you know, dropping
2: hormones. So where do you start when someone comes to you or that is revealed? I mean, one of the first things that I would say is if you do experience it, it's not going to happen forever. Obviously, those women who do have low libido, it's a really, really important part not to miss again in the consultation and and to ask a lot of questions about it. I mean, generally, the hormones are fluctuating but dropping. And the two most important ones, of sexual desire and response, are your estrogen and your testosterone. And so these women will experience low libido because of that. So HRT and testosterone are really important treatments that can really help women in this area. But I think another way to look at it also is not just the hormone side of things, but also the physical side of things. You know, to have good sex, you want to feel good in your body. And a lot of women might find that suddenly that they're not as flexible, you know, that their joints hurt. Um, And also there's a lot of medications that cause low libido. So I think those things should really be addressed as well with the GP or the doctor that they're seeing. So looking at the whole body and the general sort of look at everything. And, and some of those, you know, medications could be reviewed and that might just make a big difference to them. It's really important to just sort of emphasise that, you know, some women do have raised libido. But the huge part of libido is what goes on in your mind. <laughs> We do say that their um, brain is the biggest sex organ and it's really, really important to explore with these women what they're thinking about sex, you know, what are their views about it. When women go through menopause, they, you know, the weight gain, you know, maybe they're sweating and hot flushes at night or they feel tired or exhausted. This makes them feel less attractive or changes their sense of self and I think that has a huge impact. So Mm -hmm. what I would say is to take it as a three-pronged approach so look at your hormones and try to fix those if you can look at your physical health and general health um, and try to have a look at that on your medication and also definitely explore the psychosexual side of things and if that's difficult for a GP or a doctor who's not experienced in this area then there's amazing psychosexual counsellors that can they can be referred to that would help them with that and explore that side of
0: things. And Angela, did you have anything else to add on that? I just find that when I'm in clinic and I dig in with people and ask about what is really going on, sometimes it's the fact that it's painful actually and that's why you don't want to have sex anymore or sometimes it's that the touch that used to be really stimulating and enjoyable has become painful or, you know, we lose our sensory nerves a bit as we get older so sometimes you need more stimulation too get the same response that you did when you were younger so I think all of that is going around in people's brains if your partner's touching you and you're sat there going oh god I don't know why I'm not responding I'm not getting aroused that's going to completely kill your response as well so I just think um Andrew and I have both been taught to this biopsychosocial model this idea that everything that's going on in your life and in your relationship is coming into the problem that we're dealing with so it's a little bit like a jigsaw puzzle. We have to really unpick what does somebody mean when they say they've got low libido? You know, is there a relationship problem? Is there a problem with privacy? Is it pain? Is it there's so many things. So it's about sitting with a woman in front of you and really digging into what's going on in her life. And then it might be five or six different things that we have to do to move things back in the right direction so
1: yeah also with so many different aspects of menopause we have to try out lots of different things um so just wanted to go back to medication in terms of hrt and testosterone how can each of those
2: therapies help so what you're doing with hrt is generally just replacing back your estrogen With it, you would need your progesterone as well to balance that out. For women who've had a hysterectomy, they don't need that balancing out of that oestrogen, so they can just stick with oestrogen on its own. And what that does, that just kind of brings everything back into level. And so what I would always do is start it off for at least three months and see if it helps with your libido. But after that, if the libido doesn't pick up and we've tried sort of higher doses and that hasn't worked, then I would think about adding in testosterone. And usually it's just, um I mean, it comes in different preparations, but generally you tend to use some kind of gel, which you would just rub in either in the forearms or the back of the knees because sometimes it can produce a little bit of extra hair. So try to pick areas that where you have less hair. And that really does work really well with some women, and they feel good.
1: Testosterone is available off-license on the NHS. What does that mean for listeners?
2: Yeah, so... Medicines in the UK are licensed by the MHRA. And to get a license, you have to have a lot of evidence and, and studies behind it to show that it works. And unfortunately for testosterone, the products that are available are for men and there haven't been enough studies done in women for that to get the license. So not all GPs would prescribe it because it is off-license. There is a female testosterone... But again, they don't have the studies to back themselves up enough for MHRA to approve it. So it's only available privately and it's quite costly.
0: I think it's about £80 a month. Mm-hmm. There's a clear consensus statement for using testosterone, but it's, it's GPs being aware of it. That's often the issue. And I think it's sometimes difficult to get... GPs to use things that they're not familiar with using and, and involved in the monitoring and things that, that's there for testosterone levels.
1: Yeah, just though, so what the listeners don't get really scared about the idea of testosterone being for men and that they can get hairy beards and things, just to say that the testosterone that is marketed for men, I believe, is around 10%, but then it's much
0: lower percentage for women. It's more about the amount you put on. So, First thing to say is this all this myth about hormones being male and female. So the average woman in her fertile life has more testosterone going around her system than estrogen. And the average man who's 60 has got more estrogen in his system than the average postmenopausal woman. So we need all these hormones. And you know what we do is we use the male preparations, but we just use much smaller quantities. So A man will use a whole sachet of the stuff that I prescribe for um, testosterone replacement and in women we just use a little garden pea-sized lump every day. We're treating to physiological levels so we're only replacing to the amount of testosterone that your body is designed to have in it in your fertile years. Um, So there's not a realistic risk that women need to be scared of this stuff, not at all. Um, So just kind of returning back to libido, we've spoken
1: about low libido that you have to kind of unpack as a clinician. But I just wanted to also share, you know, something that we hear on the community is what I suppose the media might call the sex surge, where women are feeling more aroused. And maybe there is kind of a difference in terms of they're more feeling aroused than their partner. Have you noticed this? And and what's the science behind it?
0: Your hormones fluctuate before they're lower. So, you know, as you go on your path through transition to menopause, it's not a linear path. Their hormones are going higher, they're going lower. The, The regulation within your body gets less good. So you get these sort of ups and downs. And a lot of the ways that our body responds to hormones can mimic the feeling that we're aroused already. So if you get increased blood supply to genitals you know that's what we're used to and for years have associated with the idea that we're feeling kind of in the mood no there really is no one size fits all experience of menopause in the same way that there's no one size fits all um, solution or treatment that we give people I think in couples it's about communication you know and explaining to your partner what's going on and how you're feeling and making sure that you've got that open line of communication about what's happening to you physically and I think you only run into danger if one party doesn't realise that somebody not being interested in, in intimacy is not about not caring about the other person. We can really stop even hugging our partners in the kitchen if we think that something is worth avoiding in the bedroom. So relationship problems spring up when people don't talk about it. And I think people complain less about feeling a sex surge than, than I hear in clinic about people complaining about not wanting sex enough though. Mm. So just to summarise, if you
1: have a low libido and you go and chat to your clinician, you might discuss HRT, testosterone after being on HRT for three months, you might be referred to a psychosexual therapist. Anything else on low libido in terms of kind of, you know, top
0: tips or most common approaches? Um, for me it's about making sure it's really there. So if sex is hurting and if you've got vaginismus where your muscles are tensing up and it's becoming really difficult to have penetration then no amount of testosterone or HRT is going to fix that. You've actually got to recognise why you don't feel like having sex and that takes somebody sat with you who's got the time and the experience to sit through and listen to everything that's going on. So yeah, absolutely. From a biological point of view, replacing the hormones, thinking about testosterone, using topical estrogens is brilliant. But there's all the rest, there's everything that's happening in your life and your relationship, and everything to think about, too.
1: So one of the things that I have really personally experienced in this whole, you know, menopause adventure and journey is, you know, continually learning about my bits. And it wasn't until I actually read um, and interviewed Jane Lewis to hear her story of vaginal atrophy in me and my menopausal vagina that, that I realised how ignorant I was in terms of not knowing all my bits. Um, and it's important isn't it to kind of know that if we want to get the right treatment and be able to kind of talk about what our problems are so what advice have you got for women are there any resources or how do you kind of you know how do you learn about that
2: yeah um, I just wanted to say that I read Jane's book and I absolutely loved it it was a real eye opener and I think as a GP it had a real impact on me to realise how difficult you know vaginal atrophy can be for some women and it really made me Want to ask every woman that I saw about it, you know, especially the women that didn 't raise it in, in the consultation, so I think it 's really important um, in terms of resources. I would say that the vulval pain society is a really good resource place. they have loads of videos and leaflets, especially explaining what our bits are, where they are, and, and also where things can go wrong, and also how to look after that area, but generally, just sort of simply speaking just to explain where the bits are. <laughs> The bits that are around the outside are called the vulva, and and they're they're like the fleshy bits that touch the underwear. So at the top you've got the clitoris, then just below that you've got the urethra, which is where the urine comes out, and then below that you've got the vaginal entrance. And around that you've got the lips, which we call the labia majora and minora, and and they kind of protect that whole area. And the bits inside are just called the vagina. So it, it is really, really important to know... I think what bit is where and what bit's hurting to be able to communicate with your doctor or or professional, whoever you're seeing. And and especially these days when everything's done over the phone or like on a video call, it's really hard to sometimes work out what a patient's talking about. When you see them face to face, it's completely different because what I would do is I would just generally ask them, can you just show me the bit that hurts?
1: And you know, there's still sort of an embarrassment almost of of women not looking at their bits. But one of the key takeouts that I got from reading that book is you have to look at something to know how it's changing and then you might sort of also get some clues as well to you know what what's going on for you and your clinician
2: you do have to use a mirror and you do it's, it's quite a good idea just if you get familiar with what looks normal for you and then mm. you'll notice them when something's changed but don't hold back don't hide these things away just go and see your GP. We do this all the time, day in, day out. And, and, and it's very easy for us just to have a quick look and be able to tell you, no, that's fine. Don't worry about it. Or, or yes, there is something and we need to have mm. a look at that in a bit more detail.
1: So we've spoken a lot about the psychological issues around libido, but we've also now been talking about some of those physical conditions of irritation, etc. So, So what, what kind of conditions might impact
2: on a woman's sexual health? Yeah, so um, obviously going through the menopause, you've got vaginal atrophy and urine infections and other problems like that, and the pelvic floor becoming a bit looser, sometimes developing prolapses and a heavy feeling in the vagina. But there's also lots of other conditions that you can get, and it is really important just to remember that you can still get infections like thrush or bacterial infections, and if you do have symptoms like that, to see the doctor... But also on the outside, on the vulval area, there's you can get eczema and dry skin conditions, especially for some women who are over-cleaning and over-washing, so it's really important not to do that. You can have other conditions such as psoriasis as well, which can occur in that area, and you get sort of very dry, scaly plaques with sort of red around the outside. There's also two other conditions that are really important to know about, lichen planus and lichen sclerosis. And and they can cause intense itching, which can drive women to distraction, you know, and and kind of take over their life. And what you might find is some raised, thickened skin with a whitish sort of look to it. And it's quite important if you have that to go and see the GP because a very small percentage of those women, some of those changes might turn
0: cancerous. So it's
2: important to get that checked out.
0: So what about uh, vaginismus? Vaginismus is a really logical reaction to something painful happening, is, is probably the best way to describe it. It's a bit like squinting or blinking if someone's going to punch you. So your body has a sling of muscles at the bottom of your pelvis, which um, they sort of loop around the exits that we've got. So around our urethra, around our vagina and around our rectum and anus. And we often think about the conditions where it gets too loose, like prolapse or when we can't control our urinary continence, but the opposite can happen and it can get far too tight. And if it gets tight in response to penetration or attempted penetration, that's what we call vaginismus. So it's like the doors can shut. And when when you see women in clinic about vaginismus, they actually tend to think that they've got a blockage or that there's actually, you know, the hole isn't there anymore and, and nothing can go in. And you can you can get it from your first ever attempts at having sex, or even putting a tampon in. So that's primary vaginismus, and women have often had that all of their, their lives. But for some women, it develops after they've had a trauma or pain in some way. So it could you know it can be a medical trauma, it can be a sexual trauma, and um, you know, some sort of um, a violent event or something. But it can also be a really logical response to the fact that sex has become painful. And it often complicates a lot of the conditions that Andrew and I have been talking about. So if you've got, you know, genitourinary syndrome of menopause and it stings and it burns every time your partner touches you, then you'll often get this vaginismus on top of that, which means that your body will just say, well, hang on a minute. No, we don't. You know, this is not enjoyable. And the muscles will clamp completely involuntarily shut. I think the other thing that's worth mentioning is when we're experiencing pain, our arousal just plummets. You cannot have fear, anxiety or pain in the same place as the kind of the, the chemicals that we need that govern arousal. Until you go and almost relearn the muscle memory um, and rewire the pathways that have developed to protect you against painful sex, sometimes you can't get to the next step.
1: So on that, what, what are the practical, some of the practical ways that might be
0: considered? That's I mean, that's really psychosex work. So it's the kind of work that you would refer to a psychosexual counsellor for and not everywhere in the UK has access to them. One of the reasons that I trained in the first place was that when I was in my GP surgery and I was treating women with this, I didn't have a clue what to do. It's not part of our curriculum as GPs to know how to help. Most psychosexual therapy takes place over about eight or ten sessions of about an hour. Um, And if you're lucky enough to get a referral, the counsellor will sit with you and work through what was the triggering event. And then a lot of the work is around reimagining those things or re-scripting those things that we've been um, worried about on a sort of subconscious level. And doing that in part with activities that might help to retrain the muscles. It's really successful work and people can get back to enjoyable sex lives. But it definitely takes a bit of time and a lot of sort of care of unpacking what's going on. Yeah.
1: And sort of in a safe,
0: safe environment Absolutely. and supported. Yeah. And I mean, yeah. Some of the things that we do if we're talking about partnered sex are to make sure that you know, when you get past the initial stages of vaginismus so that somebody can actually accept penetration of some sort, you actually want to get the woman to feel in control of that penetration. So we'll often work with sexual positions um, or with some toys and adjuncts and things that can control the depth of penetration as well. So um, the first thing to do would be to try and talk to your GP and see whether they have access to that sort of support. If they don't, then there's lots of other agencies around that work privately. So
1: what's your view on mindfulness and, and meditation with helping
0: around that? It's part of it, actually. So I think one of the exercises that we use psychosexually, self-focus, is basically mindful touch. It's about slowing things down and getting back into your body um, and working with touch on your genitals, but not for pleasure. It's much more about sort of zoning in and noticing the quality of the touch and actually sensate focus with a partner, which is another psychosexual technique, is really similar. Broadly speaking, it's about taking the pressure of what we call PIV, so penis and vagina sex, away from people that are experiencing problems and getting them to just scale it right back to enjoyable touch with their partners. So you've got to put time aside, you've got to make sure that you're relaxed, you've got privacy and then gradually working towards slightly more erogenous zones and, and ultimately back to genital touch as well. So a lot of that is about mindfulness and putting time aside to really focus in on the sensory and the sensations and take your brain out of the loop. So let's talk about some
1: of the other options that we haven't spoken about already, such as topical HRT. So what is, what is the difference versus, you know, systemic HRT and how does it work?
2: Yeah, so topical HRT is just used locally in the vaginal area and systemic is the one obviously that affects the whole of the body. It comes in different forms. You can have sort of gel capsules, you can have creams, you can have pessaries. It's worth sort of exploring that with your GP to see which one would work better for you. If that doesn't work and you have a bit more severe symptoms, then there are other things that you can use. Um, There's a product called Vaginal DHEA, and that's usually used for more severe cases. Also, the the newer things on the market is these vaginal lasers, which I did read about in Jane's book as well. And I think that sounds like it has a really good impact. But unfortunately, that's not available yet on the NHS. And um, if you do want to try it, then it's something that you would have to do privately. And more and more clinics are opening up these days for, for that.
1: Let's just go back to those different formats that you were mentioning because there's, there's creams, there's tablets, there's pessaries. What are the pros and, and the cons, I suppose, of each?
2: Yeah, I think the pessary is, it comes with an applicator and you just insert that inside and then it stays inside and then it just turns into a foam and then it releases the oestrogen that way. Creams are quite good for the outside if you're having a lot of symptoms on the vulva or... or around the entrance to the vagina then that's quite nice to use that way but creams inside can be a bit messy if you actually see the um vagifem pessary and the applicator it's really hard and it's it's stiff and it doesn't it doesn't sort of work with a female anatomy so actually sometimes the gel capsules are better because you can just insert that yourself mm. um so yeah that's quite a nice way of doing it as well
1: and once
2: they're in, there's obviously oestrogen inside
1: you, is there a, a particular time length of when you shouldn't have penetrative sex and is it dangerous if the partner gets some or does it go too high that it wouldn't?
2: Yeah, I think, I think it's a very small amount of oestrogen and it will get absorbed locally and I think for the amount of oestrogen that you've got there, it's a bit messy inside anyway so I would just wait a little while for it to be absorbed. Um, but I don't think if you've got a little bit on your partner, I don't think it would make much difference. And you can use it long-term, and it, and, and the studies show that it doesn't increase your risk of breast cancer, so mm. it is safe to use.
1: Are there any women that can't take topical HRT?
2: Yeah, so the women that I would tend to avoid is women who are on certain anti-cancer drugs, such as letrozole, after breast cancer. But even if you have an oestrogen-sensitive cancer of some sort, then... It's really worth talking to your oncologist about it because it is absorbed just locally and and it doesn't not absorbed systemically. Then they might even approve it for you, and they might do really well with the vaginal lasers. And, and to even think about that,
1: yeah. So there's obviously hormonal replenishment
0: that we can be doing. Um, I mean, yeah, I think because it takes people time to figure out at home that they can't fix it themselves, and then to do their research, and then to go to the GP, and, and so on. You've got problems that are really bedded in. So one of my big things that I talk to women about when I see them for their HRT consultation for the first time is that even if they haven't got vaginal problems now, they need to be really alert to the fact that about two-thirds of them are going to develop issues like dryness and soreness. And I often come back to what I want to do myself, what do I want for my sexuality in the future? I don't want to develop a problem and then spend ages trying to claw myself back when I've already developed vaginismus and everything else because it's hurting So understanding that the vagina is designed with oestrogen to clean itself, to look after itself, to protect against infection. And when we lose our oestrogen, we lose that system. So yeah, moisturising is really important. Topical oestrogen is really important. And from the point of view of looking after your sexual tissues, you know, your erectile tissues and the bits of you that are really important for sexual touch to be pleasurable. If you can have oestrogen, then you really ought to consider it in my view, because When we look at um, women in their 70s and 80s, the clitoral tissue has really shrunk away. And that's because it's not getting the blood supply that it gets during your fertile years. Um, So we need women to understand that we're actually designed to function best in those years that we have those hormones and at least make an informed decision about what you want for the next 20 or 30 years of your life. Because it is definitely harder for your bits to work as they were designed to work in the absence of those hormones. And just to go back to this
1: point about shrinkage and ageing of tissues, are there any other props that we haven't spoken about?
0: Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's about blood supply. So not many women that I speak to understand that in our fertile years, we have reflex erections of our clitoral tissue, just like men have nighttime erections. And the tissues are like sponges and they're kept in a kind of a squeezed out state, so at night time, they get flushed through with blood and it helps to get rid of the toxins and to keep them healthy. And when we go through menopause, that process changes and it, and it doesn't happen as often. So things would naturally kind of recede and get smaller. So if you get aroused more frequently, then blood is invited back into the pelvis more frequently and it keeps things a bit more healthy. But that doesn't need to be partnered sex. That can be solo sex. It can be through doing your pelvic floor exercises, which pulls blood into the area and helps to keep the structures healthy.
1: Yeah, just thinking about daily self-care rituals that we should be thinking about to improve our vaginal and sexual health.
2: Yeah, I would definitely make sure that you don't overwash that area. Simple things that you can just buy over the counter, like E45 wash, and definitely don't wash inside, just on the outside if you want to, but to use something that's quite moisturising, so Dove or E45, something like that. And just get into that routine of just regularly keeping that area, checking in in there and and making sure that everything feels good. And and if something doesn't, just go straight in there and talk to your GP about it. There's also vaginal moisturisers on the market.
1: Um, Obviously, I know we need to be careful that it should be fragrance-free and not contain any parabens and uh, and all of that. So are there different steps, I suppose, you know, topical HRT versus moisturiser? And would your advice be that all women, regardless of whether they're getting sort of itchiness, should be once they're in perimenopause, to start
2: moisturising more regularly? I mean, I would basically think about it as you would about your skin, generally. You know, if your skin's dry, you want to moisturise it, and it should be, like, part of your routine once you go through the perimenopause and the menopause. And You don't have to do it every day, maybe a couple of times a week. It just should be just part of your normal routine, and it really helps with that dryness and, and soreness. But it's not to be confused with the lubricants. So the lubricants I would use when you're having intercourse and to avoid pain and and to make it a bit more smoother. But I would avoid it on the days that you're using the vaginal oestrogen as well. I think also keep doing those pelvic floor exercises, especially as they're approaching menopause and later on in life. It's what holds you up, basically, and it helps you sort of stand up straighter, especially with your core. So it really helps increase the intensity of your orgasm. So the stronger the muscles are, the stronger the orgasm. And then the last bit would be The menopause is a real shock to the system where you suddenly stop and have to take stock of what's going on with yourself. And so I think it's a really nice time to sort of focus on yourself, reconnect with yourself, just generally looking after yourself and and taking a stock of, like, what you're eating, you know, what exercise you're doing, because all of these things are so important for later on in life, for that next stage of life. So, yeah, just look after yourself, look after your vaginal, vulvar area and, and definitely do those pelvic floor
0: exercises.
1: So just, you know, finally, are there any apps or resources you'd recommend?
0: Yeah, I mean, I think back to that thing about understanding that there's no one size fits all. So getting a proper assessment of what's going on is always really important. But if you've got an idea of what the issue is, I mean, I direct people to the Joe Divine and the and the SmileMaker site from a point of view of um, sex toys and lubricants and things. They're both quite responsible sites that are not particularly salacious I think some women um don't always want to go onto a site that's very you know obviously sexualized and actually they're good sites in in that regard and they're often containing devices and things that are useful for women who've got health issues or you know post breast cancer surgery or whatever issues that, that might be useful so they've got good videos and good toys and advice available there's a lot of societies that will support women that have got problems um in this area so the Volvo pain society I think is is one of the key ones to to talk about, because they talk about how to self-examine your vulva. And there's loads of menopause apps and, and information that's sprung up and, and it gives advice, and I think that's great. I think sometimes what's missing is the ability to individualise that to somebody rather than leaving them completely overwhelmed. I think even the list of conditions that we've talked about with you is enough to make women kind of go, oh, my God, you know, what's, what's going to happen to me? And it isn't always like that. I think, from my point of view, it's more about actively looking after this bit of you so that you don't end up, you know, 65, 70 with significant issues that you wish someone had warned you about. Because I I do see women that I've seen in clinic who are 70 with, you know, into a new relationship, and nobody's ever warned them that if they didn't do something at 50, they might have a problem later. So most of it's about being aware.
1: Yeah, I think that's the real takeout for me today in our conversation. But also ownership, you know, that our vulva vaginal area is not just about for men or for another partner um, and sexual pleasure um, there are so many different aspects to that in terms of how we feel about ourselves comfort you know being able to sit down um, the pelvic floor as you've mentioned you know it's all so connected so as well as awareness it's just about looking after ourselves and, and with that is is empowerment and the fact that we can actually change our, our outcomes I mean in many of our health outcomes with a bit more sort of attention and priority and of course the importance of going to see a clinician um, to you know if there's anything that people aren't sure
0: about. I think it's important that you feel okay to talk about this as well though because I regularly come across women who have not felt that it's okay to bring this issue to the table like it's a cherry on top so women after particularly after things like breast cancer and so on who've been put on life-saving treatments but with the massive side effect of plunging them into an induced menopause knowing that it's okay to raise it knowing that we can adjust treatment regimes to support that and that your quality of life is not the same as someone else's quality of life feeling empowered to ask someone to individualize things for you is really important as well I think
1: yeah really good point fantastic well thank you both so much for coming in today and for just sharing the most amazing amount of of information um with all the listeners today much appreciated
0: it's a pleasure thank you thank you